This morning we begin a new series of, of messages, a new topic that's going to take us through the beginning of September, or December, it's already the beginning of September, um, and uh, because this particular message is the opening message and is meant as an introduction, I'm going to be using some technology, so um, rather than have you flip all through the Bible, which I know some of you can, but the fact is you'll probably rip your Bibles if you do, and uh, if you don't, you won't be listening because you'll be figuring out how to find Philippians 3.2 and Hezekiah 1.4. No Hezekiah, but just checking. Um, <laughs> as part of this series, uh, there is a little mark, uh, marker, it's a bookmark in your worship folder, and that is for you to take out and to put in your, your Bible. Um, we tend to think the memorization of Scripture is for kids, for Awana kids and Sunday school kids, but I, I know from firsthand experience that each day, words that are taken into my mind that I can say in my heart and pray over um, are life-giving words to me. And um, I, I spend almost every day memorizing some portion of Scripture. That's not because I feel like I have to, but because I, it's a necessity for me, and it's how we connect with the Lord. So we'd like to ask that you take this, put it in your Bible, and just commit yourself over the course of the next 10 weeks to memorizing these two texts. One talks about where hope comes from, and the other one talks about the content of, of our hope first one's taken from Romans 15, 13, where it says, may the God of hope fill you. He's the one who fills with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We can't make ourselves hope for something. It's something that God fills us and something the Spirit of God does in his people. And so that's verse one. And the second verse is taken from Revelation 21, three through four, which really talks about the content of what we're hoping for where it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be um, with them as their God. That, by the way, that statement that God will be with them as their God and he will be his people, that is the central statement of all the covenants and all of the Bible, that he would be our God and we would be his people. And in this text, it comes to fruition. Um, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So those verses, if you can take them and sink them into your mind so that you can take them and just allow them to soak into your life and heart, um, would, I think, make a difference every day. So this is for you to put in your, in your Bible, and we're asking that you would memorize those and pray over them. Well, the main topic, if I was to to give it one word is the word of hope. That's what we're going to be looking at over the course of the um, next 10 weeks. It's a bit broader than just hope, and there's more definition to it, but that's pretty much it. And in my readings about this, I have, this, in many respects, this, this sermon series has been about, well, 15 years in the making, just in my own development and how I think about the future and my reading and my study of Scripture. So the next 10 weeks is really the fruit of that. It's not perfect, not meant to be perfect, and I'm sure it's not exhaustive, but it is something that I've thought about for a long time. And in my readings, I have come across a statement by a, a gentleman who lived in Switzerland. He was a theologian by the name of Emil Brunner, and uh, he uh, fought the good fight back in the 20th century. And one of the things that he said that caught my attention was this, about hope. He said, what oxygen is to the lungs such as hope to the meaning of life. That's a pretty, um, that's an image worth thinking about, as or what oxygen is to the lungs right now, breathing in and out and living, 
Such is hope to the meaning of life. That's something maybe you want to write down. That is how important it is. It's what you need to live is you need hope. Now, you may have never heard of Emil Bruner, but you've heard of C.S. Lewis, who in his Mere Christianity makes also a statement that talks about the importance and the power of hope in the lives of Christian people. This is what he said. He said, The Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most about the next. As he notices, and it's true through church history, as you look, that the people who are the most productive, most effective, most passionate, most faithful followers of Christ were so in the present because they thought about the next. That's how important hope or maintaining a future perspective on life is if it sinks deep into the heart. It will make you productive and faithful. It will purify you. Both of those statements kind of outline or tell us about the importance, importance and the power of hope. It's, it's the truth that I think is picked up and it is um, colorfully displayed in that classic John Bunyan allegory called Pilgrim's Progress, which if, if you've never read it, it's a, must, it's a must read, in which Pilgrim, who is actually named Christian, um, burdened by his sense of guilt and... Um, driven by hope because of a word by an evangelist, leaves the city of destruction, leaves behind his wife and children, plugs his ears and runs off towards the narrow gate and through the narrow gate to the celestial city. And the whole, the whole story is of his, his, his progress and the journey of hope towards this thing called the celestial city by way of the narrow gate. That celestial city, as you may well speculate if you haven't read, is, is, is heaven. It's, it's, and beyond that, the new heavens and the new earth. It's what he lived for. It's what gave him motivation to make it up and over the hill of difficulty and through all of the dark valleys. It was this central hope called the, the, the celestial city. Now, that whole concept of what the celestial city is and what it represents to the church and the opinion of many, including myself, is in our time a largely forgotten city. That doesn't mean that we don't speak about heaven. We hear it at funerals. It doesn't mean that we don't assent intellectually to it in our doctrinal statements about the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't mean we don't sing about it in hymns as we just sung Amazing Grace um, when we've been there 10,000 years. It doesn't mean we don't recite it in our creeds about the resurrection of the dead. The question is really, do we believe it? And does it make any tangible difference whatsoever in your life? Because if it doesn't, then it really doesn't live in you. And so that realization that, you know, today's world, largely the today's church is, is, is this is another analogy, is probably a bit like Dorothy heading to the Emerald City. And she's making headway when all of a sudden she stops and, by magic spell, um, finds herself intoxicated by these magic poppies and she and her friends fall asleep when the Emerald City is right there. That I think what has happened to many of us is that we have allowed the intoxicating pleasures of the pleasant life and everything it holds to just lull us to sleep. Meanwhile, the main towering hope set before us, this thing that Bunyan called the celestial city or the Bible calls the new heavens and new earth, stand there waiting for us to say, that's where we're headed. But instead... We're oftentimes asleep and so, so ambivalent to what lies ahead. 
That's my perspective and the opinion of many on, on today's church culture is that we've lost sight of the celestial city. It's forgotten. And so over the course of the ne- next 10 weeks, we, we want to take a journey together um, as a family. And that is, by the grace of God, to humble our hearts, to focus our gaze, and to pray with our lips the Holy Spirit would do just what um, Romans 13 says, that he would fill us and overwhelm us with the hope that lies ahead because, what Lewis said, that the ones who were preoccupied with the next life were the most productive and faithful in this one. So we want to have the Lord breathe the fresh, fresh oxygen of hope that Bruner talked about back into the life of his church for a very, very practical purpose of us living faithfully. So that's where we're headed. Before I get to the introduction of what I want to say this morning, let me just tell you where we're headed so you have an idea. total of 10 messages. This is an introduction. Then following that are a series of five messages. And actually, let me back up and just say, we're going to focus on the end, on hope itself. In other words, we're not going to be focusing on the sequence of events or the chronology of events prior to the end. Issues like how long is the period of tribulation? Is it 10 or is it inter-advental between the first and second coming? What are we going to know or believe about the millennium of Revelation 20, um, 1 through 10? Those all are sequence of events prior to the actual end, to the very last day and all that it, it holds. Um, we, by the way, took the name the last day from the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 54, where he talked about the last day. It is a, is a phrase that has been used and reformulated through the entire history of the Bible. Isaiah calls it that day. Jeremiah calls it the day of vengeance. Ezekiel calls it the day of the Lord, so do others. Malachi called it the day of his coming. Paul called it the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've adopted the name that Jesus uh, referred to it as, as the last day. We're going to focus on the end itself. So the next five messages are going to be given to five things. The judgment of the believer, judgment of the unbeliever by Christ, and then three messages on the content of our eternal hope, namely the new earth, the resurrected people of God, and the presence of God. Those five things. Following that, three more messages to kind of bring biblical perspective on on the power that that kind of hope generated by the Spirit of God should and can have in a church or you as an individual that is meant to have a very practical and powerful influence on your life right here, right now. It's just not some theoretical thing that's going to happen there. We actually change when we hope. And so we're going to talk about three ways that we change. Um, And then one final one, message, just to say how this whole idea of the centrality of hope should be burned into the fabric of, of our minds, our hearts, and the worship of this church. So that's where we're headed. This particular message, as I said, is an introduction. I just want to give you a little warning. I really want to, at this point, reach your mind. I want it to sink into your heart, but I don't want it to sink into your heart by bypassing your mind. Um, God calls us to use our minds and to say, is this biblical? And if it is, then let's pray and ask God to just overwhelm us with the hope that it represents. So I'm primarily going to be talking to your mind, though I want it to sink into your heart this morning. So just to prepare you, this is put your brain on in fifth gear here.
I want to answer a sim- simple question, one question this morning, and it's why. Why spend 10 weeks talking about the last day? What's the justification for taking that? I could understand if you're talking about the cross or you're talking about some aspect of spirit or so forth, but why focus on the hope for 10 weeks? And my answer to that question, that's the only question I'm going to ask and answer, the answer has two parts. One, I want to kind of flesh out the, the contemporary need. There is a need right now in church today, in our lives right now, for a renewal of hope. So I want to talk about the contemporary need. And then secondly, I want to talk about the biblical priority of hope. That I, I hope to show you, by the time you get to the end, you'll see that this whole idea of the future and the last day, it's not peripheral. It's not some backwoods theology. It is central to Christianity. Central to everything that we believe and central to the cross itself. So the first part, I just want to simply establish the need. Why? Why? What's the contemporary need for, for this hope? I'm going to give you five different things, and, and they're, some of them are related, some aren't. But these are kind of the things that make this focus on hope necessary. One of them, the first one, is a bit, might be a bit dated now, but it still, I think, holds true because people have a fascination with latter times, end of days stuff. Scores of books have been written on it. Cults have been um, started as a result of focusing and getting fascinated with and, and twisting up what the Bible teaches about the future. In light of that, one of the things that I think needs to be corrected is a nearsighted obsession um, with the events prior to the end. That is, there is a latent desire in people's hearts, a curiosity, a passion that's very easily released when we start talking about the events that precede the end. Now, some of you have read the, the, the massively successful series called the Left Behind series. Again, a bit past now, but from what I understand, just amazing fiction with some kind of a future perspective in it. Over 60 million copies have been sold. Just to tell you kind of the latent desire and, and, and obsession that we can have over these kinds of things. But the f- series focuses on the sequence of events prior to the actual hope itself. I don't know how many of you grew up in in church, conservative church, in the latter part of, well, the 70s and 80s and 90s. But as a kid, I think I was 9 or 10 years old, I saw a series of movies that were the worst movies ever made, (laughs) but terrified me more than anything else I'd ever seen. And that is the whole Thief in the Night series. I got to tell you how many of my friends I saw make panic decisions for Jesus because they were afraid to death of that very thing. Now, just as a side note, I don't, you can scare people into making a decision in just, for just about anything. Most of those conversions that I, or conversions, most of those decisions that I saw in reaction to the scare tactic of those movies, as horrible as they were, um, have fallen away. I don't think it's panicking people into, into the kingdom. It's about people recognizing that God who is, is vast in his love has overcome our sin and has taken judgment for us and moved by both the fear of the Lord and the love of God to follow him. 
At any rate, we were swept up as kids into that, into that movement. And there is still um, pockets and sometimes even people in our church who have a real fascination with that. And what I, what I want to say is, that's not the end itself. I don't think Paul got really excited in 2 Thessalonians talking about the man of lawlessness who many believe to be some future antichrist figure. I don't think he penned the, 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 that chapter with passion going, wow, this is so exciting. The man of lawlessness is coming. No, it, it, the reason he gave us such signs and so forth and Jesus in Matthew 20, chapter 24 was largely to warn us, hey, it's going to get tough before it gets better. It's not something to get excited about. What's worth getting excited about and the center of hope is seeing the face of the beloved himself. What excited even Paul more than the spiritual gifts was now I see through a mirror dimly, but then I'll see face to face. Any talk about the future or desire or passion aroused about the future that's not centered on his face I think is fundamentally flawed. And probably just driven by the same carnal curiosity that drives people to, to speculate about the year 2012 or, or figure out when Nostradamus actually predicted the earthquake. There isn't necessarily anything spiritual about it. But the future is about Christ. So there has been, in the last several decades, a, a nearsighted obsession with these events that prior to the end. But that's not the end. On the other side of the spectrum, there are those who, who are completely turned off by the subject, in large part because of the controversy and confusion. Now, when it comes to study of, of end times in the future, apart from what everybody agrees on, namely that Christ is going to return, there's a new heaven, new earth, resurrection, there is a whole massive amount of literature and controversy over how we get there. Most of you aren't going to know anything that I'm talking about. Some will, but this is how complex it gets. The question of tribulation of Matthew chapter 24. How long is the duration? Do you understand the duration in light of Daniel chapter 9 or in light of Revelation? Is it interadvental or is it just the seven-year period? Moreover, when in the process does God come and gather his people in the middle, the beginning, or the end? How do we interpret biblical prophecy? Or even harder, how do we interpret rightly the apocalyptic uh, Parts of the Bible, like Revelation, with its horns and eyes and monsters and harlots, or Daniel chapter 7 through 12. There's tremendous controversy on how to interpret that stuff. Lots of books have been written. Do you understand this millennium of, of Revelation 20 to be something still future? Is it something we're in now? Is it something that, that Jesus comes at the end of? Pre-mid or pre-amil or post-mil? I mean, it's notoriously complex. And what ends up happening is that people hear all of that. And it's like somebody shoved a calculus book in front of you and said, hey, aren't you excited? It's like, that doesn't excite me. Or, or someone saying, you know, hey, here's, here's uh, quantum physics. Isn't it crazy? Like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Now, I don't want to diminish the importance of some of those issues, interpretive issues and so forth. They are important in their own right, but comparatively... You don't want to be guilty of throwing out the glory of the face of Christ with the dirty bathwater of controversy and confusion. And that's what happens. Like, just kind of throw the whole thing off so people no longer think about the second coming because it brings up this whole mass, massive knot of confusion. 
You know, if you have to, just let that stuff settle. Remember, you know what the main thing is that I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to seeing the face of Christ and having all this junk out of my life and being with people that love me and I love and we love him together. That's what I'm looking forward to. So I'm just saying, don't get lost and don't let the controversy and the, and the complexity allow you to diminish the importance of it. Set your eyes on what's primary, not what's secondary. So that has been a hope killer. Another one. This is, this is today's culture. We are largely consumed by our problems. And we can't even see beyond the horizon of our problems and trying to fix the problems that we even have time for hope. Moreover, that hope is looked by many, even Christians, especially Christians, because others aren't going to have the same kind of hope. It's looked as irrelevant. It's like we're talking about something, I don't know when it's going to happen, but i got problems right now. i got to figure out how to fix my marriage now. i got to figure out how to reach the heart of my kid now. i got financial problems now. I don't know how to make my mortgage payment now. And talking about hope doesn't fix the now. And that is... What we're largely consumed by is present problems and the belief that somehow that hope is irrelevant to my present problems. That is true of individuals and oftentimes that's true of pastors too. We recognize, hey, people are struggling with real problems, painful problems. People come in every Sunday whose heart is like at the end of the rope, just ready to snap, just looking for a simple word of hope. They have a present problem. And oftentimes... We're tempted to, well, let's just address the problem. But we end up addressing the problem from a very present tense orientation or a very pragmatic approach. Hey, here's some skills. Fix your marriage. Rather than doing something that actually transforms the heart, doesn't just give people tactics because tactics without motivation is nothing. You know that. That's why people that go to marriage conferences come back and they don't change because the problem isn't with the information they had. The problem is they had no... Desire and passion and motivation to actually do it. So shouldn't we, in dealing with the present problems, deal with them, not just in a present tense perspective of how do I fix this, but look up. And maybe in the light of the shining hope in front of you that gives you strength and courage and fills you with a sense of peace, you're actually then able to deal with the issue. And doesn't, the, doesn't our future encounter with the living, risen, glorious Christ who loves us more than we'll ever know, doesn't that have something to say about my problems? I mean, on a very human level, you could be having the worst week ever. But if you know you're going on vacation the next week, somehow it lightens the present. <laughs> doesn't it? It does. It's like, hey, I don't care. I am going on vacation on Friday. It changes the whole orientation of the present to have something to hope for and look for into the future. And God has guaranteed that that future is there for us. See, I think we have to look forward and allow it to shine into our problems and give us the proper motivation, perspective, that, you know, next to eternity, the problem is not that big. And I'm going to trust that the Lord who has my present and the Lord who has my future is going to carry me. So, that's to say that we, there is a general preoccupation with the present problems and thinking that somehow it's not relevant. This was a statement made by uh, Thomas Long about preachers who tend to um, that present problem mentality and just dealing with it from a 
dealing with it from a, um, well, pragmatic perspective. He says that today many preachers are willing to discuss life's fleshier problems with the frankness of Jerry Springer. But the prospect of preaching a sermon on the second coming or judgment day chills the blood. That is part of the temptation for preachers and pastors is to realize that some of you don't care about what I'm saying right now because all you are is concerned about the present. And if we can talk about the grit of the present life, then there will be interest. But you know what? The pastor or the preacher is not charged with entertaining people. But withdrawing people who have the Spirit of God in them into a hope that it will never change and will give them strength for today. And that is who I today am preaching to. And if you don't have any inclination whatsoever towards the hope, then ask the Lord, Lord, I need eyes for something bigger than this life. And I believe the Spirit of God is the one who puts that in you to see that life is bigger than the present tense. Um, so that's enough said about the present problem. Fourth, I'm going to do these last two rather quickly. I don't think I need to tell you that there is a, a general laxity of moral and ethical behavior on the part of Christians, that those who attend church are not that much different than those who don't attend church. Um, I think a big part of that is, is we have lost sight. It's not the only reason, but we have lost sight of the fact that we're all going to stand for Jesus. And... Um, and he's going to inspect us. He is our hope, but he's also our inspector. And to know that a day is coming, we'll stand before him. Um, the gospel, not the gospel of John, the third, first epistle of Apostle John, chapter 3, verse 3, that says that those who have this hope in them of being like Christ and seeing Christ, they purify themselves. There's a purifying effect on why you live and how you live if you maintain a hope and a perspective. Back to Pilgrim's Progress. One of the reasons the Pilgrim kept getting back on track and refusing to, to go off permanently on, on, on the way of danger or, or whatever was because he had this hope of reaching the celestial city. Hope purifies the presence and, and, and gives us strength in the present. It will give us the, the ability to say no to sin because you know what, I want to, that's where I'm going and that's what I want and I know someday I'm going to stand before him. A loss of that, a loss of hope, a loss of the reality that we have a last day coming, I think will lead to a kind of laxity that we see right now. Perhaps it's the effect of us losing or forgetting the holy city, the, the celestial city. And so there is a laxity. We need it. We need to realize as a part of, of as God's body to, that he's, he's coming and that the fifth one is, is just also, you're presently aware of this, is just the adversity that many people are facing. John talked about termites. It's almost as if God has sent termites into the foundations of the world in which we live. And a lot of the, you know, the generation I'm a part of and younger, losing confidence in governments and state. Um, lost, the, lost confidence that the economy can stabilize. <laughs> Some of you don't have very much left in your 401k and you're close to, uh, close to retirement because things have taken such a radical fall. The, the great institution of marriage that's supposed to be from I do to death 
no longer seems to hold a lot of value. Some of the most sacred foundation stones of, of civilization are like being eaten away. And I'll tell you, you, you feel the insecurity and you feel it in the church. And you certainly see it outside the church. Listen to the lyrics of, of a secular pop radio station and you'll hear desperation and despair. You drive by Fairfield High School, as, as I did a few weeks ago, and I just looked at the kids and it's like there's no hope. What are you going to live for? Well, this is why we need to resolve and have a renewed God awakening and once again breathing that fresh oxygen into the lungs of his church so that one, thing, one we actually believe it. We don't just say it, we're convinced of its truth. And then when they see the hope in our eyes, they'll say, why are you so joyful despite the fact you don't have, you just got your house foreclosed on. It's like, well, I have a hope, can't be taken away, and I don't just say it, I believe it. That's, that's, they need to see that we actually have hope. We just don't talk about it or sing about it. We believe it. So just the context, there you have, could say more, but either people are nearsighted about it, they look at the, the prelude, you know, to the end. It's like a bride walking down to see her groom on wedding day and getting fascinated by the carpet and the flowers and forgetting what she's looking at. <laughs> Just the general indifference, because it is controversial, the stuff before the end. There's preoccupation with present tense, present problems that we all have, and we feel like hope is, is not relevant. There is general laxity of sexual morals, marriage, finances, stewardship, speaking, and then just the need. We just need hope. So those are the, those are the contemporary reasons, the need for our time. Now let me speak to your mind through the Bible. Because if, if the hope isn't that important to the Bible, then it shouldn't be to you or me. There are many, or maybe it's just some, I don't want to overstate it, who think of the end, hope, new heavens, new earth, resurrection from the dead, second coming of Christ, as peripheral. Kind of a back burner doctrine, the appendix at the end of a systematic theology. And what I want to submit to all of us is this idea of the future, the last day. It is not peripheral, it is not superficial, it is substantive, it is central, and it towers in the Christian life. Now let me root that statement. That is, I'm, gonna, I'm telling you that it's all important. It's not a little bit important. It's super important. As central to the life of the church as the cross is, let me uh, show you why I believe that. And again, I want you to think about this. And if you believe this, then we start praying this direction and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with the same kind of hope to repel the ancients to live like they did. First, I don't believe you can understand the cross without understanding the last day. Or to put it as I put it here, the cross and resurrection of Jesus are last day events. What do I mean by the last day events? Well, a couple things. The last day or the future day that 
I would align with the second coming of Christ, is going to bring two contrary results. One dark, one light. That the coming of Christ is going to bring judgment on those who do not believe, the judgment of sin, but also resurrection for the righteous. So it's going to be a day of, of mourning for some, and it's going to be a day of jubilation for others. It is judgment and, and salvation coming upon this world. That is the last day, those two things of judgment and, and salvation. We're also told in reference to that last day that's coming, it's a day on the calendar that certain things will accompany its coming. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 24, and John talks about it in Revelation 6. And those two things are darkness, the sun will not give its light, the moon will refuse to give its light. Both Jesus and John tell us this, again, Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 6. As well as there is a shaking of the world. That's going to happen at the end. But those things also happened at the cross. I'm going to call to memory your mind of understanding of the gospel. If you haven't read the gospels, then maybe you've seen the passion of the Christ in which Christ is getting ready to die and darkness covers the whole area. The sun does not give its light, the moon does not give its light, and the ground shakes and the temple breaks. Those are last day events move forward to Good Friday. Intended to give us the sense that God's last day judgment has now been focused and poured out on his son. So for Jesus, the last day was Good Friday. Judgment was moved up in history and focused on his son. And on him, as, as uh, Isaiah said, on him on Good Friday, the iniquity of all God's people was laid, crushed, and punished. So the what we are to understand about the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, is that God, in amazing display of, of unbelievable love and mercy and grace to his people that he wanted to save, who didn't deserve it, is that he moved the last day forward so that all who would believe and come into his refuge would then be protected on the last day. Which is why in this time that we live, we're endeavoring to tell people and show people by the way that we live, there's a day coming in which God will bring judgment and salvation. But for those who have taken refuge in Christ, who was basically judged on Good Friday, there is protection that our judgment as Christians has already fallen. It, fall, it fell back then. So we have nothing to fear as we approach the last day. Or for those who are visual, maybe this will help. There's the last day on the right. Judgment and salvation. It's coming. The world is going to experience it. It's been believed for thousands of years. Prophets, Jesus, and apostles. It's coming. Maybe sooner, maybe farther than we think. But God essentially moved his judgment forward in Christ. And instead of pouring out his wrath on us, he poured it on him so that we could experience his love and freedom. So we don't face that, and we're not supposed to face that day if we are truly in him, trusting in him with fear. Because the, the last day happened already. See, I don't think you can understand the cross without understanding 
that it's part of the last day. He died precisely to keep us spared for the last day. So if, if you can't understand the cross apart from the last day, that means the last day is extremely important. And let me just also say, keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that the cross of Christ, as important and central and foundational as it is, it is a means. The end is seeing the face of God and being overwhelmed and enveloped by his love. It is the means by which God took to get us there. The last day is important in understanding the cross. Secondly, there's only three. The, the last day is intimately connected to this thing we call faith. Most of us are aware that faith is crucial. We have these statements like sola Christus, by Christ alone are we saved, and uh, sola fide, which is by faith alone are we saved. I mean, that's how important it is. We've created these little slogans so that we can remember, I'm saved by faith, not anything that I do. I'm saved by grasping Christ and what he's done for me and trusting in it wholly. That's what faith is. It's that important that we're saved by faith, which makes faith extremely important to, to us. But that faith that we have and that saves us has a past orientation, but also a future orientation. In terms of the past, this is the Apostle Paul, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's the historical event of what God has done to free us from the, the judgment to come in the future, you will be saved. So you're called to believe something historical, something God did, something he did in the person of Christ and his cross and resurrection. So our faith is attached to the back, uh, to, to backwards in history. We often forget, however, that faith also, saving faith, stretches forward. We trust God in terms of the future, and that is an essential part of faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I love the way that he, well, this is translated, assurance and conviction. Faith isn't simply saying you think something's true, like you say that I believe that the Pacific Ocean is big, but that you're assured of it, what you're looking for, and you're convicted that it's true in a way that changes you. The way that it's described here, the nature of faith, is it is forward-looking. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, which means it's something you desire, something you yearn for. Nobody hopes for cancer, unless you need therapy. You hope for what you desire, what you long for. Faith has a longing, a desire for something yet future that we don't yet have. So I'm saying is part of faith, which is so important to the Christian life, is this future dimension, this future orientation, this forward-looking, God's going to do something great in culminating everything he's promised and everything he's done at the cross. And that's what I'm looking for. And the whole chapter resounds with the same truth. Hebrews 11:7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, there was still future. Hey, a flood's going to come, but I'll save you. In reverent fear, constructed the ark for the saving of his household. His faith looked forward and believed what God said was true. And as a result of his forward-looking faith, 
He built a massive ship. You can't say that that forward-looking faith has no effect on his life. It had a dramatic effect. He built a ship. <laughs> Here's something funny. <laughs> Never mind. You know, for my remote, I, this is a, my iPhone, okay? Someone just texted me. And it got in my way. Sorry, just to come back out to back to it here a second. <laughs> and if you right now text me in the congregation, I am like, hey. <laughs> I was like, hey, we can distract him. <laughs> All right, I just distracted myself. Um, come back to me. Just, I just want you to see that faith is so deeply and integrally connected to the future, not just the past. That by faith, Abraham, he went to, the land, to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, that's future. For he was looking forward to the city um, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham's faith was forward-looking, believing that God would, would give him a promise, a promised place, a homeland. And that, the, the radical result of that forward-looking faith that he left his homeland and he left behind his, his, his family. So that hope, that forward-looking faith had a dramatic impact on his life. Hebrews eleven thirteen, All of these, these great ancients who lived by this forward-looking faith, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised. It's as if they were leaning into the future and, and they never received it in their lifetimes. Why? Because they were living in this forward-looking faith. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they are not seeking a homeland that is not here on earth. If they had been thinking of that land uh, which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They understood the celestial city. And it made a difference in how they lived. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, in hope, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater, of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For, and here's the reason why he, he said no to the fleeting pleasures and embraced suffering, because he was looking to the reward. I mean, that, that deals with the moral and ethical laxity. It's like he understood there's a reward to be had, and there's a future to be had, and I'd rather say no, yes, so I can experience yes later. He had a forward-looking faith, and it had a very practical effect on his life. Hebrews 11.35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. In other words, they were given opportunity to leave, but they said no. Why? So that they may rise again to a better life. They're willing to be tortured because their hope is so powerful. Or the final one, Hebrews 11.39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They lived in hope. And that is part of our faith. I hope you're hearing the main point here is that faith, which is so important to salvation, looks back to the cross but it yearns in hope forward future to the culmination and completion of everything that God promised. And that makes a difference in how you live as it did here. Men built, men built ships, left families. They said no to sin. They embraced suffering. were willing to, to forsake release because they looked forward to a resurrection.
That's how important it was and how powerful it was in their lives. And something that we desperately need right here, right now. Each one of you need this hope. You know what? I'm, I'm short on time. I was able to do this first service, but I um, couldn't do this second service. Let me just, uh, let me just flip to the book of Philippians. If I could, I'd take you through, because the last point is, is that the scripture, the Bible, is permeated with the future. It's not just a few isolated texts like Revelation or, or First and Second Thessalonians or First Corinthians 15. It's almost on every page. It dominates the Bible. Dominates the Bible. You go home and you just start reading and see how much it figures in to things. Here's, here's just a... Um, man, I... Move forward. Philippians. This is a book of Paul's that wasn't addressing an issue with the future. Like he addressed the Corinthian church because they had a messed up view of the resurrection. They, they were saying it already took place. And so naturally you'd, effect, you'd expect his letter to the Corinthians to deal with the future. But what about Philippians? The main problem of the people who lived in Philippi was not an issue of the future. It was an issue of unity and, and suffering. But check out how often it figures into everything that he says and everything that he does. Philippians 1.10, so that you may, be, may approve what is excellent and, supposed to say and, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10. So that at the, sa- at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. He's doing a study on, fl- on humilities for the sake of unity. And he draws attention again to the end by the day in which every knee will bow. Or 2.16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud of you um, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's laboring and committing his life to ministry and self-sacrifice because he wants these people to stand true on that day, on the day of Christ, the last day. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Counts everything as loss compared to having Christ, gaining Christ, and attaining the resurrection of the dead. That's how powerful the future was in his life. And here, again, an epistle that's not dealing with the future per se. Or Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Or, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, and so forth. He keeps coming back to it over and over and over and over again. To sum it up, I hear the the words of Jürgen Moltmann, who I think gets it better than anybody else, just to make the, the main point. From first to last... And not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end. Is hope forward-looking and forward-moving, and therefore also revolutionizing and transforming to the present. All of creation, all of redemption and revelation itself is moving to the one sea called the last day. In light of that... I am praying and we're hoping, because these words that I'm saying and what I've shown you are just words unless, as this bookmark says, the Holy Spirit takes it and breathes 
new oxygen into the lungs of his people and breathes hope back into the lives of his people and into this church. So I am praying, and I hope you will pray with me, this just, that this just won't be a series of messages, but by it, the Spirit of God, as we humble ourselves before him, pray, Lord, will you fill my, my spiritual lungs with oxygen again and help me to see the celestial city for what it is. Help me to see at the end of history Jesus standing there towering, saying, I am coming. And may we with Paul be able to say that right now we see his face dimly as through a mirror, but someday, Someday we're going to see the beloved face to face and then he will wipe the tears from our eyes. That's something to pray that God would swell our hearts with his hope. So in the days ahead, I'm hoping to show you just what that hope consists of and by it, may the Holy Spirit um, breathe that oxygen into our lungs. Will you, um, as the worship team's coming, will you just spend a couple of moments asking personally, God, would you, if this is true, would you help me by grace to set my eyes on the future, my heart on the future, not the present, but the future.